Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with our awesome sponsors, Najahi Events. More about them later. Today's guest, where do we start? 34 years old. He wakes up. He thinks he's got a bit of man flu. He collapsed. He's rushed to hospital, and he was given just hours to live and a 3% chance of survival. In fact, he'd contracted something called Strep A, followed by septicemia, which led him to having all four of his limbs amputated. As well as losing his limbs, he lost his lips and his nose. Surgeons have since grafted skin from his shoulder into lips, leaving him, he jokes, looking like a Simpsons character with a nose that constantly runs. Instead of spiralling into despair and retreating into a state of self-pity, he took a truly inspirational approach to what happened to him. The story of his positivity and adjustment to a new life is truly remarkable and was the subject to a Channel 4 documentary. His progress and exploits have been well documented in the media. He's 41 years old and since his life-changing illness it's been remarkable. Many would find it hard to believe but he says that great things have come of it. It's made me think differently about being a father, a partner and a human being. He continues to break barriers by becoming the first quadruple amputee to kayak around the southern tip of Greenland and complete a 320-mile expedition along the Orange River in South Africa. Then in 2019, he became the first quadruple amputee to hand cycle 15,000 feet up the highest mountain range in Ethiopia in a solar-assisted four-wheel vehicle designed by engineering students at the University of Southampton. The project enabled him to try and challenge the cultural view of disability in Ethiopia and drive change in the attitude of the people towards the disabled in their communities. Whilst the wheelchair manufacturing facility, which became the legacy of the trip, will transform the lives of hundreds of disabled kids and people in Ethiopia every single year. It gives me absolute pleasure, such a great pleasure, to introduce to you the most extraordinary guy we've had on the show. Mr. Alex Lewis. So, Alex, first of all, thank you so much for coming to join us on the podcast this afternoon. Pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, Secondly, what a remarkable story. I know that the listeners are going to be really keen to know what goes on. And I know that after this podcast, I'm probably going to get a million questions is, why didn't you ask him this? Why didn't you ask him that? <laughs> and so f- forgive me if I try and get as many questions out as possible, but maybe if you just, uh, t- just, just tell us in your own words what happened. So um, it was back in 2013. I was a very uh, easygoing um, kind of horizontal uh, landlord of a pub um, just outside of Salisbury. Um, my other half, Lucy, she was running a restaurant um, in a little village called Stockbridge, not too far from where we live. Um, and I was a stay-at-home dad to my little boy, Sam, who was two at the time. And in November, I caught what I thought was just a little bit of man flu, felt a bit rough. Being a man, I moaned and moaned and moaned constantly for the first 10 days or so. And after about 10 days, it got really, really rough. And I'd never had uh, flu-like symptoms before, but I was starting to feel worse and worse. And then after about two weeks, I remember uh, going to the loo in the, in the middle of the night and there was blood in my urine. So I, I went back to bed 
um, Lisa said, you're right. I said, no, there's blood in my urine. She goes, look, go back to sleep in the morning. If you still feel really bad, then we'll either call the paramedics or we'll call the doctor. So in the morning, she had gone to open up our restaurant. And luckily for me, my, my son was at my parents that night. And when I woke up, I was lucid, semi-conscious, really, at best. I couldn't button up my shirt. I couldn't put my jeans on. Um, I didn't really know what was happening, where I was. And then I, I remember a knock on our back door. And I managed to almost stagger or fall downstairs, really. And I got to the back door and I opened it. And there was Lucy and my stepfather. And their faces just recoiled in, in horror at what they were looking at. My skin had turned purple. Um, it just, it, the visualization was, was shocking. And Lucy called the paramedics straight away. Um, luckily for us, uh, the paramedics had just been to a call five minutes down the road from where our little pub was, because um, it was in the middle of nowhere. So they swung by, they took one look at me and put me in the back of the wagon. They said, look, we need to get into intensive care now. Um, we probably got about 20 minutes. Is there a shortcut to Winchester Hospital? Um, Luckily for us, it was a Sunday morning. There was no traffic. We did know a shortcut. And I got to Winchester within about, I don't know, something like 17 minutes. Um, burst through the double doors, straight into intensive care. Lots and lots of questions um, from doctors, nurses. Um, you know, have I been near any water courses? Uh, what's he eating? What's he been drinking? Um, and then I, I remember trying to tug at Lucy's arm when they asked the question about watercourses because we had a, a, a stretch of the river at the restaurant and a, a really old um, sort of 1920s storm drain at the back of the pub. Um, and I, we, Lucy told them that information and they decided it was Vars disease, um, which you catch from rat's urine. And then luckily for us, a consultant came in, it was just starting his shift and he looked at me and he said, has this man been diagnosed? What's wrong with him? And the other consultant said, yes, we think it's Vars disease. And this chap said, no, 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 it's not that. I've seen this once before in, in Cape Town in South Africa. This man's suffering from strep A. And then I was whisked into uh, intensive care life support. And that's where I lay for four days. And on the third day, they gave me a 3% chance of survival. So they told Lucy and my mum to go away and have a think about what they'd like to say as a final goodbye. Um, they said, look, we can wake him mechanically in the morning. Uh, you, he won't be able to hear you, but you can say your final goodbyes. Um, and then luckily for me that night, the consultant who was looking after me tried something that in the UK was frowned upon, but was being used in America in a trial stage. Uh, he felt it was the last attempt. There was nothing else. You know, I was either going to die or I was going to live with this treatment. And luckily for me, I woke the following morning looking up at some funny tiles on a roof um, and lots of nurses and a million machines beeping around me. Uh, and then from there on, I was dispatched to Salisbury. Um, we were told that Winchester couldn't look after me. They couldn't continue my care was the official statement. They wouldn't say what that meant. Um, and when I got to Salisbury, I remember again going into another ICU, but this one had come through beds for some reason. And I remember lying there and the double doors beside me opened up. My parents and Lucy and my best mate had all gone into a waiting room. So I was lying there on my own. This beautiful woman sort of wafted around me in her scrubs. And she was sort of looking me up and down and she goes, well, how are you? I said, well, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? And she said, well, you're very polite. 
And I said, well, my mother's brought me up to be polite to beautiful women. I think I was flirting, but I wasn't doing a very good job of it. Um, and she said, well, I'm sorry, but you're not very well. And because of the strep, you'll certainly lose your left arm above the elbow. Uh, we think we can save your uh, lower leg, but you'll certainly lose your feet. And I think I can save your right arm by fusing uh, your left shoulder to wrap around and, and save your right arm. And you'll have facial surgery uh, at some point in the next year to 18 months. And then she walked out of the room and I was just lying there in shock. Um, I couldn't comprehend what she said. Uh, and then my best friend walked back in, you can see I was freaking out and he's like, oh my God, what's happened? And I, I tried to tell him as much as I could. And, you know, all of a sudden there's a lot, a, a lot of anger with my parents, with Lucy, with him, about what had gone on. Um, that night I was sedated, the following day was the beginning of all my surgeries and amputations. And sadly I lost both, le uh, both legs above the knee. Uh, the left arm came off first, that was, that was a pretty good operation. They did manage to save my right arm at that point. Um, and unfortunately I lost that about six months later, um, which was a very drunken night out in London, um, involving Holly Willoughby and Nobu, that's a whole different story. Um, and then and I had facial surgery. So I probably had a roughly seven or eight months in hospital straight through. And then over the course of the next two years, I was in for about 19 months. So that's a very kind of brief overview of, of what went on. So when, when you were in hospital, you'd heard that they were gonna operate on you. You didn't, they weren't gonna give you a timeline as to when, you just woke up the next day and you'd realized that there'd been some amputations taking place. Yeah, I mean, I, I woke up and I remember going into theater um, and my plastic surgeon explained to me, you know, we're gonna start, we're gonna remove your left arm first because all strep tries to do is it, it comes from all your extremities. So it can be in your ears, your nose, your lips, your toes, your fingertips and it's just fighting its way and it's destroying your body until it gets to your heart and then it kills you. So my, um, my skin at that point had pretty much turned jet black. Um, it, was, it looked like frostbite basically. Um, and my left arm was uh, the, the kind of, the, the blackness had got to my elbow joint. Um, and so the left arm was first and then both legs above the knee were next. Uh, and then my right arm surgery so I think between, I probably got to um, Salisbury on about the 25th, 26th of November. And then all my amputations had taken place by Christmas Eve. So I was in and out of theater all the time. Um, I had skin grafts from my back uh, fused onto my stumps. Um, as I say, my left shoulder was actually fused into my right arm. It was a world first, never been trialed. So I had the, uh, you know, the, the only arm on the planet with that kind of surgery and that technique used, which was fascinating, I think, um, at that point. And then uh, they fused my uh, lips about a year later with uh, the right-hand side of my um, shoulder and lower back. Uh, and again, this was the first time they'd ever done a top and bottom lip with the same piece of skin. So I was a uh, uh, I was a great test case and guinea pig. I was, my, my plastic surgeon and I are very good friends now. And so am I with the consultant who saved my life. You know, these guys worked above and beyond uh, anything I'd ever seen before. The level of commitment 
and as it as time wore on the 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 emotion their emotive buy-in so it was huge and we we became very very close friends um and I remember my plastic surgeon saying that you know people like you I'll see one of the one of these in my career you know I'll get the chance to do something like this once you know you are very very fortunate to be alive and we're very fortunate that we're able to try all these new techniques for the furtherment of plastic surgery and for other patients moving forward so it was quite it was, I was I felt um mortified at the beginning but once I understood that the strep was trying to kill me then I kind of settled into the acceptance of the amputations and all the work that they were carrying out now I suppose after some time, whether that be months or years, you can you can look back and consider yourself lucky. But I'm I'm sure at that time you weren't considering yourself lucky. I'm sure while you were an able-bodied person, you know, handsome dude. What did your mum say about shoes? Always make sure you got nice shoes on. And um, um, you, you, the, the being, I'd say, similar to me in essence. Okay, you 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 kind of take pride in your appearance and stuff, and then you go from that to the realization that you're losing limbs at a, a fast rate what where, where was your head how did you how did you deal with that emotionally because you can't have been sat there full of gratitude at that time no i mean the the anger that i felt when i was told i was going to have all these amputations carried out that dissipated quite quickly because i was so heavily drugged that i was completely relaxed um but I think there was a turning point for me when I think it was Christmas Eve. So I'd had all this work done. I was, I was completely wrapped up. Um, I'd had a temporary skin flap on my mouth, which gave me a very strange looking face to say the least. But I hadn't seen my son for, well, since the 17th of November to Christmas Eve that year. And I was desperate to see him. I missed him so much. Being a stay-at-home parent was probably, well, it actually it is the best thing I've ever done. You know, I had two and a half, two and three quarter amazing years, my little boy. And in hindsight, I was fortunate to have that with what happened subsequently. But Christmas Eve came and I, I said to Lucy, I said, can you please bring him in? I'm just desperate to see him. And she said, okay, no, I'll bring him in, that's fine. And I thought, the poor, poor little lad's gonna be freaked out. It's hospital, he doesn't really know what's going on. And the nurses were fantastic. They, they met him at the door, they walked him up to the ward. And I remember looking at the double doors at the end of the ward and, and I could see Lucy and this whole wave of excitement came over me. And, and then the doors opened and Lucy walked towards me and then Sam walked in behind her. And Sam started looking around, trying to see where his dad was. And the minute he could see me in the corner of the room, he hid behind Lucy's legs. He was absolutely petrified. Because I'm lying there thinking this is gonna be great. But in reality, that poor little lad saw his dad with bits missing, you know, a face you didn't recognize. A lot of the black was still around, the dead skin was all around my face. Um, and Lucy tried to pick him up and get him to sit on the bed. He just wouldn't do it. He could not, he couldn't cope with it. So he went away that night and I was absolutely devastated. Dev I cannot describe how pants I felt with what had happened. I understood that he was freaked out and I understood it was a lot for him to take in. But all I wanted more than anything else was a cuddle, really. I just wanted him to get on the bed and cuddle me. But when he went away, I, my, my whole attitude just completely dipped. And the nurses at that point hadn't seen me be that down. 
you know they were amazed at how well I was coping with it and I didn't think I was coping I was just trying to get from one day to the next I didn't know how to do it anyway the nurse rang Lucy up and said um look Alex is taking a real bad turn we're quite concerned is there anything else that we can do for him to cheer him up you know it's Christmas Eve is there anything else in his life that he'd want to see any person or at least said well the only thing that he loves kind of more than me is the Labrador so I had a beautiful golden Labrador called Holly um who I sadly I lost last year and her and I were we were you know it was me the dog and my son for three years really so she was always by my side and I missed her just as much anyway that night the the head of the the ward um she allowed Lucy to bring Holly in to see me and I didn't know what's going on. And I, I, it was quite late, it was about half nine, quarter to 10. And all of a sudden I hear these tiny, tiny feet outside the ward. And I'm, I'm thinking, what on earth is that? And then Lucy walked in and there was my Labrador. And oh my God, it was just brilliant. It was just amazing. I was so happy to see her and she was happy to see me. And there were seven people in that unit at the time. And when the dog came in, every one of us were lifted. We all felt that that was a slice of home that we'd all been missing. And, you know, she brought a lot of joy in that room that night. The, the nurses loved her. And it was just an amazing gesture. Never in a million years would I think they'd allow a dog into an intensive care unit. But they did. And for that 20 minutes that the dog was in there, it was just lovely. And when, when the dog went away and Lucy went, out, went home, I just felt, oh my God, that's, that's probably the nicest thing someone's ever done in my entire life that was such an amazing thing and I think at that point I thought Do you know what I'm in such good hands such good shape and it just it altered my my processing of what was going on and so that was Christmas Eve and I moved into a, a normal ward on the 1st of January um, 2014 and when I left the intensive care unit out of the seven people that were in the ward that, that night when the dog came in only I was only I survived. So knowing that the dog gave them happiness right at the very end was amazing, really. It's something that I've never ever forgotten. I never will forget that. And it just made the whole thing palatable, I think. The powerful bond between a man and his best friend. Wow. Absolutely. Wow. So t t tell me, did, was that like a, almost like a turning point for you? Did it give you hope? Did it give you courage to look forward? Or was it, just, it, was it just giving you some peace? I think it gave me hope. And what the nurses said is that, you know, you need to get well and we need to go through this to get you back home, to get you back with your son, to get you back with Lucy, to get you back with the dog. Um, and I think it was, it was that kind of, it was their their comments that were swirling around my mind thinking do you know what you're absolutely right I'm gonna do everything i possibly can to try and get well to go home i think i didn't really understand just how much i had until you're just about to well, you think you're going to lose it all really um and i think because uh, i had lucy i had sam and i had the labrador you know it, it gave me a will to survive really it made me want to go home and from that point, I did everything I could in terms of following their advice, their rehab, every, every, every struggle, everything was, was kind of done with a, a smile on the face, knowing that it was getting me closer to the, the dream of going home. My, my wife and I watched the documentary uh, three or four days ago. And 
as we were watching it, we were thinking about your wife, Lucy, and, and my wife said, what man do you know would ever do that for his wife? And I was like, okay, that's coming from her perspective. But she, she, yeah. she, she was wrapped up in the emotion of what Lucy was coping with. And do, do, you, do you take time to process that or do people talk to you about that? I mean, obviously you live in it, but... Um, being... I, think, I think right at the beginning, I think it was just after Christmas and uh, I was starting to see more and more visitors, people coming in, because it was a lot for my friends to process as well. You know, some, I lost friends over it. They couldn't face coming to see me and it was very sad, but I get, I got it. You know, I understood. And one mate came in and he said, look, I need to ask Lucy the question that you don't want to ask her. And I immediately knew what he was going to say. And I, and I said, do it. And that question was, you didn't sign up for this. You know, when you got with Alex, when was it, Barney, about six years ago at that point, you know, at no point did you think you were going to go through this. And this is absolutely life changing for all of you. You've got a young son, you've got, got two businesses, um, you know, do, do you love him? And are you going to stay with him? Um, and Lucy's answer, she didn't even take a minute to ponder it. She just turned around to him and she goes, of course I love him. And then said, I never got with him because I liked his legs. <laughs> and then from that point on, when he came back in and he re regaled the story, it just, I was crying with laughter. Um, but I, you know, Lucy was phenomenal through it all. You know, not only did she look after Sam, she never, ever missed a day of work. She worked seven days a week from the moment I arrived in Winchester to the moment I left in mid-May or uh, yeah, end of May 2014. She was just a machine. And I think her, her way of getting through it was work. She could distract herself with work. You know, she never told anyone what was going on. Um, and when news started to filter out, you know, she just got bombarded with questions. How's Alex? What's going on? And it just all became a bit a bit too much, you know, and I felt, I felt bad for then. Um, but I think it took her, I think about two, two years really to get a head around it. Um, I, I was living in it every minute, every minute of every day. Um, but it, I think it took Lucy a lot longer, but her, her fortitude through it all, you know, I, I would not be sat here chatting to you if it hadn't have been, for the way she dealt with me and with everything else. Uh, she's an amazing lady. I'm very lucky to have her. Incredible, incredible. Now, you go back home, you leave hospital, you get that 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 kind of positive move to get home. What did it feel like? Was it like there was a movie once called Waiting to Exhale where it's kind of like when you knew you were in the right place, peace came and you exhaled. Did it when you got home, did did it feel like that or was it a bit alien because of the fact that you didn't get around in the, in the same way anymore? Yeah, I mean, we were living above our a pub in the countryside um, and we lost our business while I was in hospital. So when I came out, I, we moved into a, a, a farmhouse that wasn't really designed for uh, a, a triple amputee in a wheelchair. Um, and I remember just before I left hospital, I was really panicking about it because the, it dawned on me that I'd never actually done anything for myself while I was in the hospital. Everything was done for me, eating, drinking, going to the loo, uh, washing, showering. I couldn't do it. I had no prosthetics at that point. I had no idea really how my body was gonna work for in the future. So the, I think when I was just about to go home, 
I was scared because I didn't want to be a burden to Lucy. I didn't want my son to see me <laughs> flailing around like a turtle on its back, trying to carry out tasks, you know, simple things. But through all my time in hospital, my best friend, who I've known since I was about 12, he lived in Courcheval. Um, he decided to leave the UK about 14 years ago. He's never come back. Uh, and he would fly in every fortnight to come and see me. He'd sit on the end of the bed and we'd reminisce about the good times and we'd talk about the future and talk about his work and he'd, you know, chat about the nurses, the doctors and whatnot. And he flew in for the final time, that final weekend. I was due to go home on a Tuesday. And he could see that I was a bit distressed. Um, and he said, you all right? I said, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm panicking. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more scared about going home than I was having my arms amputated because it was the, how am I going to do how am I going to be an adult? How am I going to eat, drink, do all these things on my own? And he, bless him, he, he, sort, of, he sort of put his head up like that. And he went, well, the thing is, um, I've given up my job in Courcheval and I'm going to move in with you, Lucy and Sam, for six months. And he said, you and I are going to figure it out. And I was like, I was like, oh my, I said, Chris, you can't do that. He goes, no, it's done. I've done it. I'm back in the UK now. And I'm, me and you, we're leaving here on Tuesday. And he did, he stayed with us for six months and we figured out he would angle grind the outer prongs of a fork off so I could then, and then he put a strap on my residual arm that I had at the time and give me the ability to eat through that tiny mouthpiece I had. We'd have to buy Tommy Tippies from Sainsbury's and try and butcher them so I could drink out of it. Um, <laughs> so many things we tried to figure out. Um, and he was a, he played the role of a, a best mate, a father figure to Sam, um, a, a, an occupational therapist, physiotherapist, an engineer, a biomechanic. I mean, he just did everything. And I, you know, I think it, with his help, it pushed my rehabilitation um, way, way forward, uh, more than I could ever have done on my own. Um, and for that, I'm, you know, forever grateful. What a man. What a man. He's a good lad. He's a legend. What an epic human being. Gee, man. God, I got emotional just thinking about him doing that. What somebody would do for somebody else. I mean, wow. yeah, I, I could never thank him. You know, and I, ever since he did that, with some of the trips I've been on, he's always been the guy that I've taken with me. So we've been to some amazing places. Um, and, you know, I miss him dreadfully. I haven't seen him for over a year now because of COVID and he's still in Courchevel. And I miss him terribly. But when we do get together, it's like we haven't been apart. He's a very, he's a special guy. Very special guy. Wow. So t tell me how long it took before you got prosthet prosthetics. So I came home um, end of May 2014 and I, I wasn't due to go to Roehampton in London until about October Um that year. So I had a, a few months at home to try and understand and, and maybe try to think about the future, how prosthetics were gonna give me the ability to, you know, put the kettle on and make a cup of tea or, you know, how I would be able to um, put my clothes on, things like that. And when I went, when I went to Roehampton, um, I had to live in um, for about, I think it was two months initially. And that was a very hard time because I just about got my relationship back on track with my son and then I was going to leave him again for two months. So I, I was pretty devastated about that. But rehabilitation was going to give me the chance to come away with, at that point, we thought I'd come away with 
microprocessor knees, um, singing and dancing arms and everything else. And when you got there, uh, the funding just wasn't uh, wasn't there. Um, you know, I'm a, I think I cost the NHS about 1.2 million just in hospital. Um, and then as it transpired, when we did some research in 2015, to keep me in prosthesis till I'm 60 is about three and a half million dollars. So at no point was the NHS gonna come anywhere near to making that happen. Um, so I got very basic arms, very basic legs, and it was a, it was a hard time. Um, disappointment at the beginning. And then when I left Roehampton, um, I had the chance to go to America to see what they were doing. Um, and that's where, that's where I learned about mega expensive kit, you know, chronic hands, wrists, elbow joints, legs, knees, everything else. And when I came back, I was so dejected that, you know, the cost of it. Um, I, I was in a bit of a quandary, really, because I couldn't get what I need on the NHS and I couldn't get what I needed privately. I was kind of lost in the system, really. Um, but Roehampton was was very hard. It was a hard time. When you actually got the, the basic prosthetics, though, was, was it tough to learn how to use them or, or did it come quite naturally to you? No, it's, it was very hard at the beginning. Walking was easier. I found easier than actually using arms. I mean, at that point, I just lost my right arm. So I had to wait a couple of months for the swelling to go down before I could get a fitting. Um, but I think, you know, my, my right arm, it probably took me 18 months realistically to become a, a, a good user, a good prosthetics user. Um, and then unfortunately, I went back to Roehampton. They were going to give me a set of legs which weren't suitable. You know, I lived at that point, I was living in a rented barn on a farm. Um, and I said to the guys, there, I said, look, you know, I, what I don't want to do is take these away with me for them to end up in a cupboard when somebody could actually use them coming through the system. You know, somebody that hasn't lost both of their arms might be able to use them. Um, and then the, the prosthetist turned around to me and said, well, we, you have to take them home. And I said, well, I don't understand. Why do I have to take them? Um, because it's part of a prescription. You know, you're prescribed legs. So you need to take sockets and knee joints and feet home with you. I said, that's, that's nuts. That, that's absolute madness. You and I both know that I will never use those legs. And he said, I know, but that's the system. And I said, well, how do I sign out the system? How do I get out of that? He said, the only thing you can do is to sign out at reception and not come back. So that's exactly what I did. I wasn't prepared to take somebody or take legs that were valued at about 60,000 pounds home with me for me to trial them um, and turn around and say they're not they're not practical and put them in a cupboard and leave them in there. I couldn't believe that was the system and I think that was a big changing point for us. So so you've almost seen the really good and the really bad side of the NHS all in all in your experience and the extreme highs and extreme lows all because of that system. Wow. So once you once you got to a place where like now you've got prosthetics and you're in a better place. I don't know what you've got on your arm there, but it looks pretty funky and cool to me from where I'm standing. So yes, I mean it's it's a standard split hook prosthesis, really. I mean it look it looks a much it looks much cooler than it actually is. It's very simple, body powered. Um, it screws, bolts, um, the, the odd Allen key somewhere, um, cable ties, <laughs> all that sort of thing. So it's, it's a bit. <laughs> It's a bit butchered, but it, it works. I think you have to find what works for you. So we're all, all amputees are different with what they use, I think. 
Did, do, do you remember having a little win when you were first using it going, oh, hold on a minute here, I can, I don't know, I can put the kettle on, I can pull the curtains, whatever it may be. Did you remember little wins? It was really random because when I was in rehab and they gave me my right arm for the first time and they said, right, we're going to, you'll, you'll have um, one-to-one rehab for two hours each week. So I'd go in with an occupational therapist and she'd say, right, well, we're now going to play square peg round hole. And I'm looking at it thinking, why am I going to, why am I going to play that? And she goes, well, it's, it's important for you to get in your dexterity of using the split hook. But at no point did they say to me, we're going to teach you how to pick up your mobile phone and make a call to your family. We're going to teach you how to hold a stylus to use an iPad. Now, the things that I probably valued more, they never taught me. And I, I felt that the, although I was getting you know, great care and great treatment. I just felt it was sort of stuck in the forties really. And a lot of the equipment that you still get now within the NHS is pre 1920. Uh, you know, the, the improvements within prosthesis have been absolutely minimal for the last hundred years. And I just couldn't believe that we were kind of using this stuff and learning these old games when, you know, we live in a, a, a tech age and, and everything for me about going back to work or being able to work or being able to do something like this, I would need to understand how to use iPhones and iPads and, you know, could I use a laptop and all that sort of thing. So I, I found it all a bit um, old school, really. Um, so a lot of my um, physiotherapy and, and rehab was done at home where I'd figure out what I needed to do. So the win was my first email with a stylus. To be able to put a, a message on Facebook to tell people that actually I'm all right, I'm having a good time, I've learned how to use stylus, I can send you a message, um, you know, stuff like that. Um, the coffee machine was a winner. That was a massive, that's a massive result that one when I learned how to put a <laughs> coffee pot in a, in a machine. <laughs> and then further down the line, I learned how to um, open a bottle of wine with one arm. So that was pretty special. <laughs> that would that, be a trick for anyone to learn that would, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh well that's really cool so then you know you, you've got into doing some some what most people would call crazy adventures all things considered how did how did that come about where did the, the you know where did the inspiration for that come from and what did you do well i was i was interviewed by itv um and a lady came to my house and we were chatting about, you know, what the future may hold. And I, I didn't really know what it, what it held at that point. I didn't know what I was going to do for a living. I didn't know what I could really do as a quadruple amputee. And she said, look, I, I know a few guys that um, run a charity on the South Coast and they're called the Pilgrim Bandits and they're all ex-Special Forces guys. Um, and she said, I think you'll, you'll all get on really well. I think you could find some, something that suits you within that group. So I met the guy that, that ran the charity and um, my brother-in-law, um, God rest his soul, he was ex-Special Forces. And so a lot of the guys knew each other and, and we got chatting and, and Mike, who runs the charity, he says, well, I think you're a good fit. So um, what do you fancy doing? I said, I don't know, what, what do you do? And he said, well, two weeks time again, skydiving. Do you fancy doing that? I was like, well, I've never done it before. So why not? And I remember going home that night and I said to Lisa, oh, you never guess what I'm doing two weeks' time. She goes, what? So I'm going skydiving. And she's like, what, what, why do you want to go and do that? And I said, well, I've never done it. And, and she said, yeah, but you, you would never do that 
if you had legs and arms. And I kind of sat there and I thought, actually, you're right. At no point when I had legs and arms did I think that I'd get in a plane and jump out of it at 14,000 feet. Yeah. So I, I went to the, the jump centre at Netherhaven um, and I remember getting out of the car and this guy comes over to me and goes, he goes, hi, how you doing? I said, yeah, I'm very well. He said, have you done this before? I said, no, no, not at all, mate. First time. So I'm really excited. And then I joked, I said, have you ever, have you ever done it before with a quadruple <laughs> amputee? And, and he just shook his head. He went, no. And I, and I laughed thinking he was joking. And he, and he said, no, we're not joking. We've never done a quadruple amputee before. I was like, well, how's that going to work then? And I was a bit kind of, oh my God. And he said, well, the only thing we can do is get you in a jumpsuit and then we'll just tie, wrap gaffer tape around you. And that's what they did. I was, I was almost caked in gaffer tape all around my legs, around my arms. And I remember going in the plane and when I got to about 40,000 feet, he shuffled me forward and he said, you're right. I said, yeah, I'm absolutely fine. I sort of hit this kind of Zen moment. And then out we went. And for that one minute of free fall, that's the first time since I lost all my limbs, I didn't feel disabled. That, for that one minute, it was that kind of, it doesn't matter. I was looking uh... around, it, it didn't matter whether we had arms, legs, whatever. And it was just wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And I remember he pulled the cord and the parachute went up, thank goodness, and we, we got back down to ground. And I remember the, the guy that filmed the documentary, Leo, he came running over, he sort of thrust his camera in my face. He said, how was that, how was that? And I said, you know what, that, that is by far the best thing I've ever done. And I think from that point, we decided that whatever comes our way, we're just gonna say yes to it. Because I never, I would never have skydived having not lost my limbs, and so ever since that point, we've just said yes to everything, from skydiving to kayaking to hand cycling to rock climbing to uh, you name it, everything. But tell us about some of those experiences, because uh, considering your position, um, again, loads of people wouldn't do it anyway. Just like you and your head, your legs, and your arms. What what of the adventures that you've done have been have been you know your highlights? I think the highlight, one of the best things we did was we kayaked around the southern tip of Greenland and um, no, there was no uh, information for a, quadru a quadruple amputee of how to kayak. I remember going to a prosthetist up in Buckinghamshire and uh, they said, right, what can we do for you? And I said, well, I want to learn to, I want to, learn to hand cycle uh, and then I want to be able to then use the same arms to maybe do some kayaking with the military. And they looked at me and they said, well, you haven't got any hands. Well, I said, I'm well aware of that. I said, well, what can, what can we do to make that possible? And they said, well, we don't know. We've never done it before. And I said, there must be information somewhere on how you transform me and give me the chance or the ability to cycle. And there wasn't any information. So we had to, we were setting the bar. So when I, when I could hand cycle, you know, we then adapted the arms to give me the ability to kayak. And that was the first trip that Chris, my best mate, and I went on with the military guys. And I kayaked around the southern tip of Greenland with my best mate behind me in the kayak. Um, because I'm a quadruple amputee, I'm incredibly hot. I have the same amount of blood, but it's got nowhere to go. So I, I remember I had a dry suit custom made. So they put me in the dry suit, they put me in the, in the kayak, and off I go. And we kayaked for about two hours, and at the end of that session, I got out. And the temperature and the light was, the temperature got to about minus six and the light was fading. And as they got me out of the kayak, they unzipped me 
and this plume of condensation came out. And I was so hot in the dry suit that all of a sudden I'm picked up, I'm rushed onto grass, I'm stripped naked within about 10 seconds. And then all of a sudden, all these boys are putting clothes on me. I'm like, what on earth is going on here? And they said, no, no, you don't understand. You know, you can't, you can't be like that. You'll die of hypothermia. And at, at no point did I think that was a possibility. So the following day I woke up and the guy comes over to me. He said, well, what do you want to do? He said, you can't carry on in that dry suit. And I said, well, what are the options? He said, well, you can either do it in your shorts and t-shirt, but if you come out the kayak in the water, you probably got a minute before hypothermia sets in and not at no point will one of us be close enough to you to be able to get you out of the water to get you dry and get you clothed so you'd be rescued and you'd be in a helicopter going somewhere i said what's the other option he said one well, no, of that that's the only option that's the only one you got so for the next eight days i did it in shorts and t-shirt and luckily for me i didn't come out of the kayak um but i remember we were we were camping right by this glacier and every every 10 minutes or so it'd be like a volcano with a huge slabs of ice would drop into the water and then the following day we, we kayaked towards the glacier and it we couldn't have timed it any better a huge swathe of the glacier just completely dropped in front of us it was like an avalanche of ice and all of a sudden we're about 10 kayaks and we're facing these huge icebergs coming towards us and the speed at which they got to you from like 500 meters away was unbelievable and the ice is bumping into you and it was just so exhilarating it really was um and we had a whale track us on the, on the last day and he frolicked all around us and he'd, he'd rise up and we camped in a bay that night and the whale actually came into the bay flicked his dorsal fin off and off he went we never saw him again this was like the stuff of dreams absolute dreams and we got, I got to the top of a hill the following day with my best mate <clears throat> where we were camping and we were looking out and we were watching the sunset and I sat next to him and I said, in your wildest dreams, did you think you and I would ever do this? And he went, no, we would never have done it. And I said, no, we're fools for not doing it. We were fools for not thinking about it, for not saying yes to things that came our way. And so from then we've, you know, we've kayaked along the Orange River in Namibia um, and the African border. Um, 2019, I hand cycled up um, Ethiopia's highest mountain with a university research group um, and a double amputee from Ethiopia. Um, and uh, just incredible going through Ethiopia and they'd never seen a quadruple amputee. So the, the visualization for them was, was frightening and we set up a, a four-door wheelchair factory over there. So we're now making wheelchairs for about $200. Um, whereas the chair that I'm sat in is about nine grand so you know we've done some good work over there that's phenomenal that's phenomenal hold on so they over in ethiopia they've obviously not seen a quadruple amputee before but you you decided after doing that hand cycle up that mountain that you were going to get involved in working out how to produce these uh, wheelchairs cost effectively yeah so the the work that we did with the pilgrim bandits like the, the the trip to greenland the trip to namibia and south africa you know they were great trips but I sort of got to the point where I felt that it was all personal development. We weren't leaving anything behind. We were kind of, we were flying in. We were staying there for about three weeks and we we're flying back out. And I thought for me moving forward, that that wasn't going to be enough. I felt that I could do so much more um, for disability, certainly. So the, the trip to Ethiopia, 
initially it was going to be a bit of a boys adventure and um, we were going to do some hand cycling down to uh, Lake Tana then go from Lake Tana into the, the source of the Blue Nile do some whitewater rafting and bits and pieces and I said to the guy I said look um, I think we can do more than that and I think what I'd like to do at that point I was involved in university research um, I took a bit of a risk well, not a risk but I just thought do you know what um, maybe we could do some good work with universities and it was just by chance I met a really uber bright guy working at Imperial doing his PhD and I went along and he said look we can't get guinea pigs people just don't want to give up their time and work on these projects and we what we're trying to devise is systems that will help people with disability and I said well I'll do it I'll, I'll drive up and, and spend time with you so that led from Imperial we then got involved with Southampton and Bournemouth and Portsmouth and Loughborough, uh, Lisbon, um, Ethiopia, universities all over the world. And the Southampton guys, I did a, a, a six month um, GBDP lane, they call it. And I said, look, I want you to devise a four wheeled hand cycle. It needs to be solar paneled. It needs to have some batteries on the back to give me assistance. And it's got to get up 30% gradient. And eventually we will take it to Ethiopia and we'll hand cycle up their highest mountain. So it was a bit of a, a pipe dream. It was a fag packet idea, to be honest. We presented to the university, bless those students, they created an amazing vehicle. Um, and that's what we did, we took it out. We, we raised money in London to fund the wheelchair facility. Um, and we set that up when we were over there and we cycled up their highest mountain, um, which is about four and a half thousand meters high. And it was just unbelievable, but what I loved about the, that trip to Ethiopia and all my trips really, they've never been done before. So quadruple amplitude going around Southern Greenland, never been done. Down the Orange River, never been done. Ethiopia, never been done. And um, I should have gone to Mongolia this year uh, to do a, with a, an updated version of the hand cycle. And we were gonna try and complete a 500 kilometer loop of the Gobi Desert, relying on solar charge only. Um, again, it's never been done. And I think I've got the bug because I'm in a very fortunate position that I can, I can use my arms, I can use my legs. You know, I'm not, there's no paralysis, everything moves. I just feel that I can leave more of a legacy behind on these trips, whether it be wheelchair factories, whether it's working with uh, disability groups in different countries. I, I sort of envisage a, a network where it all stems from the UK, but we can give advice to a university in Bahadur in Ethiopia. We can give advice to a university in Mongolia that might be designing new processes, um, all these sorts of things. So it got to a point where it's cool things, but also a legacy. That's amazing. Really, really amazing. Just talk to me for a minute about other people that you meet that maybe uh, have suffered in similar ways. Obviously, there's people in the military that will have lost limbs that you might have been exposed to. But but more importantly, people that have been exposed to strep A as well. Have you met anybody like that? Yeah, um, I've met a few guys that survived strep. Um, I mean, I had a, a myriad of strep, septicemia, necrotizing fasciitis, um, kidney failure, all sorts. So I've met people that have had similar problems. Um, I met a few guys from strep. I've met an awful lot that have lost limbs through sepsis. Uh, that is without doubt the largest contributor in the UK to multiple amputations. 
Um, I think the odds of me surviving what I had, with all things considered, I had more chance of winning the Euro Millions. So, <laughs> you know, the, the odds were astounding to survive. How old are you now? 41. And what does the future hold? Through the university research, we, we've got involved with some phenomenal projects. And at the moment, we're um, running a, a, something called Project Limitless, which is um, so producing affordable and comfortable prosthesis for children. Um, so we're, we're furnishing the under 10s at the moment in the UK. But we're working with places like Syria, Sri Lanka, Uganda, Sierra Leone, on trying to understand just what amputees want do they want a hand? Do they want a split hook? Do they want a functional tool that gives them the ability to use a fork or to use a paintbrush, a pen? Um, the affordable prosthesis is close to my heart because the cost of the prosthesis is just shocking. I think that's always been something that I've wanted to um, do more about, quite frankly, um, because Lucy and I were lucky. We had a great network of people behind us and we had people that were some people that didn't want to come and see me in hospital would go away and research prosthesis and understand what my future held with what I was going to get given. Um, and now we work with universities all over the world on developing better prosthesis. Um, so the Limitless Project is very close to our heart. Um, I'm working with a company at the moment that's doing some incredible work with bionics and bionic hands. And um, I think for me, the future holds I just want to change the face of prosthesis globally. I want to make it accessible. I think 10% of all amputees have access to the right prosthesis. Globally, 2% actually use them. It's just nuts. That's incredible. Yeah, to, and that, to, to, in my to, mind, that that's just not right. That needs changing. Yeah. It's a, that's my mission, I think. If my listeners here that are listening and watching your story today, could do something and make a contribution or help in any way, what could they do? They just need to get in contact with me. I am readily available. If they go to the Alex Lewis website, www.alex-lewis.co.uk, and then they'll find my email address down the bottom. I think for us, it's not about the money. It's about the network. We can make a huge amount of difference with the right network. And I think, with the Limitless project that we've run, the, the take-up of it has been astounding, absolutely astounding. It's something that we never envisaged at all, just how much people have got behind it. And I think we could probably, by April, we would have given every child under 10 in the UK with upper limb difference a free prosthetic. So that's the largest, the largest wow. project, prosthesis project ever in the UK that's successful. Um, so the, the chance of rolling that out globally is something that we desperately want to do. And I think we've proved that it, we can do it in the UK. So let's now roll it out. Let's make a difference globally. Man, that is incredible. Massive, massive kudos and congratulations to you for doing that with those people. Wow, that's just genuinely something really special. How many, how, how, just give me an idea, just before we finish, give me an idea of the numbers involved here. How, how, many, how many prostheses are needed, do you think, globally? 
Is there a number you could pick on? Is it is it a hundred thousand? Is it is it a million? Uh, what is it? It's probably twenty million. Twenty million. Um, the problem we have with prosthesis and amputations is there's no data. Where everything is an estimate, um, and what we're finding as we speak to different clinics is that there's no real handle on how many people there are. So what we what we need to do first is to understand just what we're looking at, level of amputations. I mean, we, at the moment, through university research, we're working on lower limb prosthesis, elbow joints, wrist units, hands, um, new types of liners, new types of um, sockets. Um, we're looking at trying to, in the UK, certainly trying to merge the prosthesis to be more lifestyle than medical. So what you wear is something that you want to wear. It isn't, I need to put that on to give me the ability to do A, B, C, D, and E. I want people to look at it and think, that is cool. I'm going to put that on. I'm going to rock today. And for kids, I think that's vital. So starting with kids, you know, to get them engaged, to get to give them an understanding of what it's like to use on, but also to put for their feedback. They can say to me or say to Nate, who runs the company, I want to hold a lightsaber. Can you build me an attachment for that? And we'll do it. I want to. I want to use my scooter, which we, we've done loads of times for kids. You know, we we want them to want to use the prosthesis because at the moment, I think the issue is people just don't want to go near them. They don't understand them. They think they're. I mean, rightfully so. They're uncomfortable. For children, they they need multiple sockets each year, so children are a very expensive um, prosthetic user for the NHS. Whereas we think with our system, we can we can ease that and. We'll, Amazingly, COVID's done us a huge favour because it's given us access to people that we never ever get the chance to meet personally. You know, we're all we're all sat here on Zoom, and you know, people do have time now. If it's ten minutes, twenty minutes, you know, there's no car journey. It's it's immediate. So it's COVID. Is, we have a COVID response with what we make. You know, we're not. There's no clinicians. There's no travelling somewhere to pick it up. We just send it out of the post. It's you know, it's simple. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, for that, with the, the future of the world, possibly, you know, we need to have more uh, aspects of telemedicine that work. Incredible. Incredible. Alex, thank you so much for sharing your story. It really is inspiring. Man, I can't, I can't, nobody can imagine what it must have been like. And to see you as a kind of, positive focus i mean if everyone would forgive you for throwing the towel in wouldn't they but just but they would though you know he threw the towel in fine you know i'd probably do the same but to see you positive and to see you with such a mission to try and help so many people and to have done such a great job so far is truly genuinely truly remarkable and I, I applaud you for that thank you i mean we're we're i mean i'm living an amazing life and i think about a year ago I, I said it, I was interviewed and I said it to someone, I said, if anybody had the ability to give me my legs and arms back, I wouldn't take them. What we've achieved in the last seven years um, between me and Lucy and Sam, um, our businesses, uh, the projects we're involved with, the university research, everything, you throw it all in, it's just been one hell of a ride. It's been phenomenal. And, you know, I, I would never have done any of this with legs and arms. And I think, you know, Strep A did me a huge favour. It made me open my eyes, made me see what I've got. 
and it also made me see what I could do because you know at one point I was destined to be a landlord for the rest of my days and I just didn't fancy that and luckily Strap came along and now we're doing some stuff that you know hopefully will make a difference in the world and I think that's a very that's a big driver big driver what a wonderful note to end that on Alex Lewis ladies and gentlemen how about that thank you so much Alex thank you I always get to the end of these podcasts and I'm like wow what a guest that was amazing but actually sitting talking to Alex and just living with him what he went through to to have that illness at being a fit and healthy and handsome man and then to lose literally lose his arms and his legs and his face not all of it but a lot of it is just something that nearly every one of us here right now just could not imagine he's truly inspirational and for him to say at the end of that interview he's glad it happened because he wouldn't be the man he is today without it says an awful lot for the kind of human being he is I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I really do hope you enjoyed it. And if you can get behind Alex and his causes in any way, then as he said, reach out to him on his website. Try and do what you can. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries, Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave me a five-star rating on iTunes. If you're doing it on SoundCloud or Spotify or any of the others, then leave me a follow. The more feedback I get, the more engagement I get, the more the podcast apps will share this content with other people. So please, please, please take the time to do that because the content here has been really phenomenal for me to make and hopefully it's been enjoyable for you to listen to.